Welcome to the Future of Consumer and Retail podcast by SAP. In this episode, we're offering executive insights for the 2022 Consumer Goods Sales and Marketing Summit. Highlights from interviews with leading executives across the consumer products industry. I'm Matt Gardner, here with my colleagues John Dano, Paul Larson, and Sonny Neely, all of us part of SAP's consumer advisory practice, here to share actionable strategies from the event. So let's start with introductions. John, would you introduce yourself for the audience? Well, hello, everyone. This is John Dano. I'm a industry advisor for consumer products at SAP. And prior to that, I spent 20 years in the consumer products industry as a technology leader at the Campbell Soup Company. Thanks, John. Good to have you here. Paul, welcome. Yeah, hey, Matt. Good to be here. Paul Larson. I'm also an industry executive advisor for SAP. And like John, I've been in the business for over 30 years, primarily in the food and beverage business. And it's great to be with everyone today and talk about consumer products, my favorite topic. Thank you, Paul. And last but not least, Sonny. It's Sonny Neely. I'm also in the consumer products industry business unit with Harris Vogel. And I am focused on the CX side of our business, having worked prior to SAP and brand management at Coca-Cola and Ferrero. And I am thrilled to talk with you all today. And I think we had a great conference and I look forward to recapping some of the highlights. Thanks, Sonny. Really curious to hear from all of you how that it went and the experiences you had. Let's start with what stood out to you as themes from this year's event. One of them for me was how do consumer products companies analyze and adapt to keep up with rapidly shifting consumer behavior really due to the heavy influences of inflation right now. Most companies are developing a much more impactful commerce strategy as consumers continue to shift their behavior away from traditional retail models. I think that was another one. But inflation was really the key, and it was impacting the costs within consumer products companies to meet new market models. Even the most consistent consumer has started to change how they shop due to the challenges they're facing financially. So it's really hitting every segment of the consumer population, but hitting them differently, which really requires an intelligent, deep approach of engagement with the consumer. John, no question. I mean, the ability to adapt is key to success, especially facing all the headwinds. We talked to several different companies and we heard about budgeting cuts in marketing spend, and they were having to do more with less. For example, a leading baked goods company and a leading condiments company both said it's about having a more targeted and measurable approach so that you can control where you can spend your resources best. We found that resources were going into getting the right data to make the right decisions. We also saw a fantastic presentation from Nestle about a really tactical way companies are engaging with their customers via B2B commerce, you know, building a one-stop shop portal that allowed customers to deliver to their end retailers with a lower cost to serve, give them a better experience, drive greater velocity, which was exactly what they needed with their business. They were thinking about ways to spend more effectively and connect more completely with consumers. And we're seeing that a lot of top global CPGs, it was top of mind. What are some of the things they can think about in the next 12 months to help them navigate these tough waters? Sonny, you captured some incredible highlights. You did as well, John. We talked a lot about commerce, and I think everyone has been incredibly creative in how they address the consumer, how they deliver their products to the consumer, they sell. But what we're really finding now, especially in this time of inflation, 
CPG companies are running their five pillars. Once again, margin and cash, growth, people, sustainability, and supply chain. Being able to focus, like as Paul said, on growth, you want to go after an interested consumer, but not necessarily the most loyal one. So using data to be able to capture deeper insights on these consumers to then create strategies of engagement to maximize your growth potential. Data couldn't be more urgent. The stakes couldn't be higher because discretionary spending is being tamped down by the economic condition. Dollar sales may be up in many cases, but units are down. CPGs are having to respond and fight against private label like they haven't had to in years. And because of that discretionary spending being pulled back a little bit, consumers change their overall preferences. Big categories of preferences are changing. Having the data and having the adaptability to deliver in this type of a market are becoming more and more critical. Yes, I mean, that's a great point. A lot of these business discussions are starting in the boardroom because of the analytics that are available now to every business leader and not just to IT. It becomes a boardroom discussion on margin and can even drift over to companies that they're looking to merge with, to acquire. They may be divesting because of the current business models that they can't support with their particular organization, although it could be very appealing to other companies in the market. So I see a lot of transformation if a company is not either buying or selling, they're going maybe out of the business. So it's really interesting times. Yeah, these are all great points. And let's talk a little bit more about how commerce itself is changing in response to these consumer needs. Yeah, Matt, there were a couple of sessions that delved into this in detail. One of them was really interesting. It was a direct-to-consumer DTC session with a range of categories that were represented, right? So you had Shinola high-end watches, you had Bimbo Foods, you know, the bread, the staples, then General Mills, which has a range of branded products. And it was interesting to talk about which of these companies were having success with D2C, with setting up their own storefront and doing direct-to-consumer commerce. As you can imagine, something like Shinola was going to be really well positioned there with these high-value, easily shippable units. But on the other hand, some companies that you might not think would be perfectly suited for this, like General Mills, were finding a couple of interesting ways that D2C was still playing an important role. One was for their new brands, trying to get them into the market, get some learnings for some of those new kind of almost digital native brands that they were bringing out. There was a role of D2C there. They also found that for brand loyalists, they gave the example of limited edition versions of iconic brands like the Simone Biles Wheaties box. It's a great way to, to connect with brand fanatics and build brand value. And then there is a role for D2C to drive sales, even for a General Mills, which is most of its business is going to be through traditional brick and mortar retail. But it's a short and friction-free way to connect with consumers where it makes sense. But I think by and large, there was an understandable interest behind D2C. But there was, an, I think, also a lot of kind of consensus that so much of what we're calling commerce growth is going through B2B2C or, or marketplaces like Amazon and Walmart.com and Target. And it just makes sense. You know, with people spending so much more time online, they're already in so many of these marketplaces. I think a lot of customers at this conference were talking about how they can grow their commerce presence on marketplaces, how they can spend retail media with these partners and grow what looks to be potentially a part of commerce that's going to take a large part of that volume in the future. But I tell you what, and this is something I'm really passionate about, one part of commerce for CPG that's sometimes overlooked, but can have a tremendous impact, not just on volume, but on profitability, is B2B commerce. 
That means leveraging a commerce portal to serve customers, especially let's say the traditional trade, the smaller mom and pop retailers, or maybe on-premise customers. Leveraging a B2B commerce portal can be an amazing way to deliver better cost to serve and better service and drive greater velocity in sales through this important channel. And that's where we actually had a great discussion with Nestle that we'll talk about. Yeah, certainly. There was just a fine example that got a lot of positive buzz. Folks were really talking about that throughout the conference this session with Pablo from Nestle. And, you know, this concept of a full end scope around B2B commerce and not just an order management type solution and the theme of everywhere commerce really resonated here because you're talking about smaller retailers. But Nestle considers this B2B solution to be a part of their e-commerce strategy is they can get to many different sized customers, you know, exactly what they need, allowing small retailers the ability to really uh, get efficient from a sales perspective and enable their salespeople to, to stop being transactional resources at Nestle and focus on new product innovation uh, and, and allow the customer to deal with the transaction in a very automated way. And it really resonated with a number of other folks who really were really impressed with the solution that Nestle had. Well, it, it doesn't stop there. It certainly was not a trans, just a transactional platform. This is, it was a really a one-stop shop. So customers could, could track their orders. They could view their invoices, which helps the payment cycle. It was integrated with the back office. So there was a full transparency to pricing, which can be complicated for any retail customer that's dealing with a negotiated specific pricing for their portfolio. So I think that was one of the things that just really set it apart. There was this ability to submit claims. I think that's what these smaller customers are looking for. They want to be able to do all that on their own time. And as John said, you're still going to be calling on these small customers, but you want your salespeople to spend some quality time building the relationship there, not hands-on keys filling in orders. So it was a pretty interesting session, as we've said. Yeah, what I liked about it was it's really maximizing the current distribution systems that are already in place. I mean, let's talk about North America. I know Nestle is a global company and, and you're talking about different business models across the globe, but in North America alone, there's over 200,000 small outlets. And these customers can drive incredible volume and distribution opportunities. The way they get their products are through multi-channels, through distributor networks that have been established forever, but they just haven't been digitized. And what Nestle was looking at was really starting to enable that distribution network and make it a profitable way to distribute and really reach out and be able to sell to these smaller outlets through established business channels. And that's its breakthrough because you are utilizing distribution systems that are already in place. So if you can maximize that, it's the quickest way to market. And it's probably getting back to that efficient way to drive margin. And it's an area for all you listeners out there you should learn about this solution. And one of the things that I thought was just a great quote from Pablo from Nestle, and this is Nestle, this is an enormous company, one of the largest companies in the world. And for all you technologists out there, one quote that he had was, don't over-customize, go simple. So even in the most complex environment, such as the international space that Nestle is serving from a customer base, 
that was his advice. And I think it's an, it's sage advice for us all. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it makes me think about the idea of white glove service all the way back in the history of consumer goods and retail. There was these opportunities for something that would be quite personal and a simplicity in how those face-to-face interactions would happen. Curious for anyone's thoughts on the ways operational efficiencies can be blended with personal service. How does that simplicity bridge into a primarily digital consumer I had a conversation with Estee Lauder and a number of different beauty companies that attended the conference. And we talked about their traditional consumer engagement model and brick and more model, where you've got folks behind counters that form relationships with their clientele and really become advisors on various elements of beauty care. And as they shift their strategy to a more digital engagement model and a direct path to purchase, An older demographic that was traditionally serving in that brick and mortar area of the store has really moved into this digital virtual space of engagement with Estee Lauder very robustly, which I thought was fascinating, right? So here you have a consequence of the pandemic that enabled non-digital consumers to engage online because the stores were closed and they realized they've been able to continue that engagement even as the stores have reopened, which has been certainly revealing and influencing the overall Estee Lauder consumer engagement strategy. Yeah, I think this digital clienteling approach is fantastic. It's a cost-effective way to do something that worked in the brick-and-mortar environment, even during a recession, even during pandemic. But it's you're lowering the cost to serve while delivering better service. So I think for a category like Estee Lauder plays in, other categories like, like spirits, they typically can do pretty well in a recession by focusing on some of these opportunities to really connect with consumers and deliver an affordable luxury. And those categories are doing well. Look at Diageo in the overall it's increasing its marketing budget, even going into what looks like a recession. Just this week, I saw Moet Hennessy may actually sell out of champagne. This is not a boom economy. This is consumers that are selecting some categories that they're just going to not cut. They might let go on some other places, but they're going to hold the spending in some places because it's that affordable luxury. It gives them a moment of relief during a relatively tough environment. You know, when I look at white glove service, I always think about durables. I think about electronics. Right. When you have the big TV delivered, you would always get the white club service because you didn't want to haul that thing all the way upstairs and set it up. Now, I think white club service is quite a bit different. White club service from a digital standpoint can really mean a couple of things. It can mean two or three hour delivery which I'm seeing in the marketplace that I live in, which is unbelievable, especially if you need something and you just can't run out and get it. So I think there's different definitions of white glove service depending on the products that you sell and what the consumer needs in your market area. I think it's going to be geographic based. It's going to be zip code based. It's going to be income based. And that's where we go all the way back to analytics and letting that analytics identify where that consumer is and what market that they're shopping in. Taking the white glove service definition and extending it into different ways to engage with the consumer's habits of buying. Yeah, and this bridges really well into what are we seeing in the marketplace changing around marketing and how these consumer goods companies are bringing the next level of what's possible in their marketing to connect deeper with consumers. Harris mentioned earlier in the conversation the importance of data, and here it was all about data-driven 
targeted marketing and just finding that better, looking always for that better return on investment in every dollar you're spending. We had a director of performance marketing from Racket um, on one of the panels, and he was talking about not just gathering data. Racket has a lot of leading brands out there. There's a lot of first-party data coming in on all their platforms, but it was about enriching that data with these vast resources that are available through clean rooms, enriching and expanding that unified record so you know so much more about consumers than you might find just from your first-party data that you've gathered. So you can drive even more targeted segmentation and micro-segmentation to better connect with consumers. We also had John and Paul and I were on a roundtable with a bunch of different customers talking about data. And it was interesting, a leading appliance company, you'd think they would be wondering about different aspects of their product or something, but they actually were were interested in using data for a unique kind of a use case. They wanted to find out which consumers in general were more price sensitive or had higher price elasticity because they knew that those that are price sensitive are probably not going to be considering a large purchase like an appliance or a premium purchase in this type of down market. So they were really looking for that kind of sub-segment of the overall potential appliance buyers out there. Another company, a huge global snack company, was also interested in data, but it wanted to be able to measure and optimize its marketing spend so that it could easily shift from different types of engagement. They talked about wanting to be able to shift on the dime from something like out-of-home spending, billboards and everything, to be able to shift that to TikTok or social media or even to another type of consumer engagement channel because they just needed to move the budget dynamically as quickly as possible because that optimization was going to be key to their success. Like I said, it was just all about data, using it in a lot of different creative ways to try and wring every last bit of value out of the dollars they were spending. Thanks, Sonny. This makes me think, too, of the relationship between marketing and media. And I know in a lot of cases we're seeing in the retail sector, companies making their retail storefronts experience centers and making it so it's not that direct-to-consumer is replacing these things, but how do you balance and serve different aspects of experience to a consumer through the various channels? And any comments on the future of media and what we're seeing in that realm of how we're starting to blur lines, maybe even across industries, because of this cross-pollination that is really being brought to enhance the experience for customers? You know, I think when people think about media, there are a lot of new types of media that kind of get a lot of buzz. But I think, no question, one of the most significant changes in the media landscape has been the rise of retail media. So that's the media that these marketplaces like Walmart.com, Amazon, Target.com, etc. are selling alongside the products that they're offering through their commerce platforms. And it was interesting. There was a lot of discussion about this pretty much everywhere you went. But an e-commerce lead from Mondelez had some interesting insights because he said that retail media allows you to be as precise as possible and to measure that. When you spend with retail media, whether they buy online or they buy in a Walmart physical store, you're going to know and you're going to be able to close the loop of attribution and know exactly what you got for your investments. So, Sonny, what I think is really interesting, if you start looking at the consumer, it's a person, it's a segment of one. And when you look at marketing, you look at media, it's really all focused on each and every one of us in our purchasing state. But what we're not diving into directly is the spend that companies are making in these two different mediums, right? Trade promotion is in the bedrock of the consumer products industry, but I'm seeing a lot of that budget being transformed over to marketing and to media from maybe just traditional ad buying or space buying or in-cap display purchases. 
So I see a big change in the way money's being spent to invest in trade and drive top line revenue because of the segment of one. So that's an area that was a pretty hot topic at this event. Yeah, Paul, I love that comment. I actually asked several different people from Colgate and Florida Growers and some others, who actually owns the retail media budget? Does the brand manager own it or does the trade manager own it? And it's still kind of up for debate, I think. In many cases, the budget at the end of the day would come from brands. So, you know, the brand person who controls the media budget in general would control what you're spending on walmart.com or whatever. But the decision maker in many cases was the trade lead. So it's a shared decision that I think people are taking different approaches with it. But I think it's also going to have going to be an important decision to optimize moving forward. Yeah, and just to add on to that, getting back to the point Paul made about it's not a consumer, it's a person, there definitely was a theme how companies are changing their view around individual consumers. And there was in the keynote from Orvion, there was a statement where brands who successfully drive this human connection in the world of everywhere commerce will win. So thinking beyond the consumer to who the consumer is winning in all moments of truth that they need to evolve their offerings from a product to an experience and the ultimate moment of truth right and we're talking about media is when the consumer becomes a promoter of your brand right so think about that in your social channels that is a golden opportunity as that human becomes an actual promoter of your overall brand pretty cool stuff these are really great insights, and it's exciting to hear just how, even in the face of all of the dynamics and uncertainty in the marketplace, how companies are being able to get closer to real time and really adapt to what's happening and finding ways that work for their individual relationships with their customers. Any final thoughts or takeaways for listeners before we close out this particular episode? I've said it before and I'll say it again. These are probably the most exciting times in the consumer products industry that I've ever seen in my 30 plus years. And when I say exciting, there's more opportunity now than there's ever been. And not only for the incumbents, also for the companies that are just getting started. And it's because we have an opportunity to transform our business. The art of the possible is possible with the technologies that are available today. We've always focused against the consumer or that person, and that's the part that'll never change. There's just more options to do it. Consumer products companies are having to be more and more versatile and really look for opportunities that are going to deliver value without a huge effort. And I think there were two main things that I took away. One was trying to better leverage those untapped opportunities that might exist within your organization, like the traditional trade. That might seem like a really fragmented, hard-to-serve part of your business, 200,000 small stores, but using standard technology like B2B commerce, delivering in a way that serves so many different needs in the one-stop shop format that we saw from Nestle can allow you to sell more and cut down the cost of selling in what might be a channel where you'd like to see a lot more profitability. And then the other thing I think investing in data is critical, but think about how it can drive profit. This is definitely not the time just to go gather expensive data or to build a library. Think about those outcomes that you want. And I think what we heard at this conference is people want more precise, more measurable consumer outreach that drives a higher return. And data is there in many different formats to make that happen. I started this overall conversation talking about inflation, so I'll finish it with that. But don't be a victim of inflation. Be proactive. Where's the opportunity? 
Invest in the various moments of truth with the consumer so you know who they are and what is influencing them so you can adapt and intelligently segment your approach to engagement to ultimately optimize your growth. So many good insights from this event. And thank you guys so much for sharing your takeaways from all of the amazing sessions. So John, Paul, Sonny, thank you all for being on the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Always a blast. Always a pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much. It's great to get this group together. In this podcast episode, we've unpacked insights from the 2022 Consumer Goods Sales and Marketing Summit. Though the event is over, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform to continue getting the latest consumer executive insights and connect with us on LinkedIn as we're here to support with the latest consumer industry challenges. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to sharing again with you in the future.